The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Dad, it's a special word. One reserved for the man who's always there for you. The one who wakes up after a long day of work to make sure that you're fed, clothed, and supported in all aspects of your life before heading back out the door to work those long hours. But there's a difference between being a father and a dad. While just about anyone can be a father, it takes a real man to be just that, a dad. If you have a dad who supported you through anything and everything while making sure that you were well taken care of physically and emotionally, consider yourself lucky, because not everyone has that privilege. As we grow older into adulthood, it's easy to see how much we may have taken our dad's love for granted. But it's often the lessons they leave behind with us that last a lifetime, whether it was teaching us how to ride a bicycle or taking us fishing. Somewhere along the way, it was preparing us for our own journey in life. If you had a good dad or knew of one, then you know the love they had for their family was boundless and that they would do anything to protect that love and bond. In today's story, we go on a journey of loss, love, and ultimately, the fight for truth. On the afternoon of Saturday, October 24, 2015, Pastor Bob Mills of the Cross Point Church of the Nazarene in Chesterfield, Virginia, was outside preparing for the following day's service. While getting things ready, he heard screams coming from the woods nearby, followed by the sight of four young children running desperately towards him. The children explained that they were involved in a car accident with their dad and that he was badly hurt. Pastor Mills went to examine what happened and saw the vehicle smashed into a tree with its tires still spinning. He saw a man in the driver's seat suffering from what appeared to be an extensive amount of head trauma, and so he subsequently contacted 911. Based on the condition of the car, it was a miracle that the children made it out safely. When law enforcement and EMS arrived at the scene of the accident just off Hull Road, they were directed to where the vehicle smashed into the tree. It was evident that the man driving the SUV was suffering from what appeared to be a massive head trauma, which resulted in heavy bleeding. As they worked desperately to remove the man and prepare him to be transported to the hospital for evaluation, Chesterfield police officers began working the scene of the accident. They were able to locate where the vehicle had gone over an embankment before entering the wooded area. Located just before the embankment markings was a set of fresh skid marks in the left lane. Once the man was transferred from the SUV and placed into an ambulance, he was rushed to a nearby hospital. As officers continued working the scene, they soon located a 380 semi-automatic pistol on the floorboard just below the driver's seat. 
They started to wonder if this man had potentially inadvertently shot himself while driving down the road. Based on the amount of trauma the victim had sustained, it was entirely plausible. But if that were the case, was it an accidental discharge or something intentional? After arriving at the hospital, physicians began attending to the man and a radiological examination was ordered. It showed what appeared to be a bullet in the posterior of the man's skull, and soon an entry wound was discovered in his left temple. Based on the findings, the prognosis was not good. Further examination would conclude what they feared most, and the Chesterfield police officers working the crash were notified of the findings. From the outside looking in, The accident made no sense. If he had shot himself as police believed, there were questions as to how it could have happened and why he had a gun in the car with four children in the first place. These were some of the questions journalist Laura French had when she first learned about the case. My name is Laura French. I am an investigative reporter for WTVR-TV in Richmond, Virginia, the CBS affiliate in Richmond. On Monday, October 26th, just two days after the accident, Laura arrived at the WTVR station for an editorial meeting when she had first heard about the accident that took place near the Cross Point Church. I was working part-time as a reporter at WTVR. I was just working Mondays, I believe, at the time. We were actually playing catch-up. We were the only station that did not get video of this at the time, we thought, car accident. So we're in an editorial meeting on a Monday morning, and they said, Laura, you know, you're going to follow up on this car accident. And I looked at them, and I'm like, great. So you want me to follow up on this car accident, and we have no video. They were the only station that has no video. And um, they're like, well, it's a dad, and he had his four kids in the car, and they go over this embankment at this church. So, you know, in my mind, I'm playing catch up with uh, these other two television stations. So, you know, I head over to the church and I encounter the pastor of the church and I start talking to him. And, you know, he's telling me, yeah, you know, really, it's this it was this divine intervention. This what appeared to be nine year old little girl came running out of the woods saying that, you know, that her dad needed help, that they had just crashed the car and, you know, that this horrible car accident happened and she had gotten her siblings out of the car. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this horrible car accident. And then back in my mind, I'm thinking, I have no video. I'm a visual medium. How am I going to visually tell this story? But, you know, you could tell that Something had happened in the woods because the brush had been disturbed. So I'm thinking, all right, we're going to just shoot some video of the woods and we're going to get our sound from this pastor that's describing what those terrifying moments were like for this young little girl. And as I'm piecing the story together, I'm like, you know, can you tell me, did this child have any family? And so I figure out that her grandfather didn't live too far away. During the editorial meeting, they learned that the man, then identified as 32-year-old Nick Clavier, passed away over the weekend after succumbing to his injuries. Like many others in the community, Laura was intrigued by the case and wanted to follow up on the situation after speaking with Pastor Mills. 
Laura drove over to the grandparents' house where other news outlets were trying to secure an interview with the children's grandfather, Nathan. But Laura didn't want to approach him as a reporter. She wanted to speak to him as a fellow human being who understood that they were now grieving a terrible loss. I came up to him and his wife and I asked, you know, are you making yourself available to the media? But before I did that, I offered my condolences and I could tell that they were so shaken up. And I believe I extended, you know, a hug to them. This obviously was pre-COVID and just sincerely offered my condolences as a mother because it just was a horrific accident. You know, Nick had passed away in this accident and it was miraculous that his children had survived. And at first they were very stern with us and said, we're, we're not giving any interviews to the media. But after I had done that and extended my condolences, he said, you come back here. We'll give you an interview. And I was like, okay. So, you know, the dad said, okay, well, the police are telling us that, you know, perhaps this was an accident or, you know, that his gun accidentally went off and he was shot in the head. And I said, okay, this is getting a little bit more, not interesting. I don't know how Barney used the word interesting, but like, you know, his gun went off. So there's more to this story. This wasn't just a car accident. Nathan explained to Laura that at the time of the accident, Nick's wife, Melody, was hours away for a family event. And although she was hours away, law enforcement didn't let her know of what happened at the time. It wasn't until she arrived at the hospital that she was told anything. There were still so many questions surrounding what had happened to Nick Clavier. Those closest to him knew he'd never do anything to endanger the lives of his children, as they were his world. We wanted to know more about Nick and what type of man he was, so we reached out to Melody Clavier Weston for an interview. Though she did not want to appear on the podcast in audio or video format, she spoke with us at length through Messenger and put forth into writing everything there was to know about Nick so that we could effectively tell his story. Nick's wife Melody's parts moving forward have been read aloud by a voice actor. Our story is no fairy tale with a happily ever after ending. However, it is a story worth telling. A story of true love, a life well lived, and journey to healing. On a morning in the summer of 2004, Melody woke up after oversleeping and was trying to make it to work on time. As she departed down her street, she began to wonder if she would have enough time to make it to Starbucks for a coffee. But soon the thoughts of a cup of joe slipped out of her mind when she saw a young man walking his dog down the street. She hadn't seen him in the neighborhood before, but he definitely caught her eye. As Melody drove by, she slowed down just a bit, and the man looked over at her and offered a nod and smile. She recalled saying aloud at the time, God, I would love a man like him. When Melody arrived at work a short while later, she began telling her roommate Ashley all about the young man she saw in the neighborhood earlier that morning. The feeling of that small interaction, just driving past him and sharing a nod, left such an impression that Melody couldn't stop thinking about him. During her drive home from work, 
Melody hoped she would see him walking in the neighborhood once again, but caught no sight of him. She wondered if she'd ever see the man again, and eventually she did. One day, both Melody and Ashley were out for a drive when Ashley stated, Ooh, there's a hot boy in the neighborhood. Melody smirked and said, I know. Though they awkwardly waved to this young man who in turn waved back, the two roommates then simply went about their day. But Melody hoped she would see him again, knowing that the next time she did, she could stop and say something, but she didn't see him again for some time. Later, during a summer rain, Melody was driving home one day and saw him once again. She pulled up next to him and stopped, rolling down her window to ask, Do you want a ride? To which he replied, I'm okay, I just live right there. He pointed to a house two doors down from her own residence. It was the first time she was able to talk to him, and she later recalled how silly she felt, but how the encounter left her with a smile. Just a few days later, Melody arrived home from a long day at work. You know, one of those days. Those days when you're absolutely exhausted and unwilling to deal with anyone or anything. After parking her car in the driveway, Melody's neighbor, an older gentleman by the name of Earl, walked over. Melody wasn't really up for socializing and was hoping Earl would be able to read her facial expressions and get the hint. But he called over to the young man who lived two doors down. When the young man arrived at Melody's driveway, Earl said, This is Nick. Nick replied to Earl, Come on, Earl. She looks like she has things to do. Melody shook Nick's hand, thanked him for understanding, and then walked inside. Though Melody did truly want to have a conversation with Nick in that moment, she now had his name and could now find a way to talk to him in the future. But she didn't have to wait long. A day later, Melody had plans with her roommates to watch movies and hang out. As the group of friends were together, there was a knock at the door, and Melody answered. Nick was standing there, and after a few moments of silence, he said, Hey, so uh, my friend and I are running up to the store, and I just thought I would see if you all needed anything. Melody asked her roommates if they needed or wanted anything, to which they said no. As Nick turned to walk away, Melody stated, Wait. Actually, yes. I'd love some ice cream. According to Melody, Nick had what she described as a big, goofy grin on his face when he said, Okay, yeah, I can get some ice cream. What flavor? Melody replied, Chocolate, please. Nick then said, Chocolate ice cream. Okay, I'll be back soon. It took some time for Nick to return to Melody's house, but when he did... She recalled that he had bags full of ice cream in his hands. As she was looking at the bags, Nick stated, Yeah, I couldn't remember what flavor you wanted, so I got a few. Melody recalled giggling a bit and began looking through the bags, only to find that Nick got essentially every flavor of ice cream possible, besides chocolate. As the days passed by after that evening visit, Nick would stop by Melody's house more frequently, spending more and more time with each visit. The truth was, they really enjoyed spending time with one another, and soon began to build up a solid friendship. Eventually, Nick asked Melody out on a date, to which she agreed. They went to see the movie The Village, though both agreed the movie was terrible and spent much time laughing about it afterwards. On the way back to their neighborhood, Melody was hoping this would be the first evening they would share a kiss, 
but when they arrived, Nick didn't make a move. So Melody did, placing her lips gently against his. She recalled that at the time it didn't quite go as planned. Nick didn't say anything and got out of the car to walk home. Melody worried that she may have misread the situation, but the following day, Nick knocked on the door and when he came inside, they shared a kiss, one that cemented the beginning of their new relationship. Over the course of the next month, the two spent most of their free time with one another. It was a match made in heaven. Melody got word that she was requested to help with the opening of a new restaurant in New Jersey. She found out she'd be gone for two weeks, and so she asked Nick if he'd be willing to stay at her house to take care of her dog, to which he agreed. After departing for the trip up to New Jersey, Melody began to realize just how much she cared for Nick, now that he wasn't by her side. She wondered what he was doing and if he missed her just as much. But what she didn't know at the time was that while she was gone, Nick reached out to Melody's mother and expressed how much he cared for her daughter, explaining that he wanted to go shopping for an engagement ring. Melody's mother ended up going with him to pick out just the perfect one. While Nick's feelings for Melody were blossoming into feelings of love, over in New Jersey, Melody was beginning to feel the same way. Her plan was to tell Nick that she loved him the moment she saw him upon her return. On the drive back home, she wondered how he might react and whether or not he would feel the same way. After arriving back in Richmond and seeing Nick for the first time, he embraced her in a big hug, telling her, I love you. Those words signaled to Melody that she had met her forever person. It wasn't even that she had to hear him say it, she could just feel it. By September of 2004, after just two months of dating, Nick asked Melody if she could drive him to the mall to pick up a game he had on reserve at the local GameStop. When they arrived, he told her he'd be in and out. After driving around the parking lot, Nick strolled out of the mall and was as happy as a clam. She recalled that he had the biggest grin on his face. She wondered how a video game could make someone so ecstatic, but then he tossed the bag into her lap. After pulling the car over and looking inside of the bag, she saw the little black box containing a ring. He stated excitedly, I can't wait. She put on the ring and later recalled that on the drive home, they both knew the answer to the question that he didn't even have time to ask. And that answer was yes. The couple eventually wed in February of 2005, surrounded by friends and family. A few months after the ceremony, both Melody and Nick learned they were about to become new parents. While those times were certainly life-changing, Nick made sure to make Melody feel protected and safe. Though Melody was scared about this new journey, Nick didn't skip a beat in taking care of her. He was there for every step of the process, from doctor's appointments to thinking of names alongside his new wife. During the pregnancy, Nick was laid off of work, and this worried Melody. But being who Nick was, he went out and got a better-paying job within a week of losing his other job. And on the day Melody went into labor with their firstborn child, Nick was at work when he was notified. He rushed home to be with Melody through every step of the way. And when his daughter was eventually born, Melody saw just how much their little girl changed the man she loved and how it immediately made him into the man he was always meant to be. She later wrote, He was in love. The smile on his face was the most prideful smile he ever had. She was 
his greatest achievement, the most important job title and his deepest passion. He was the first to hold her. He changed every diaper in those first few days. He didn't want to miss a moment with her. I knew the moment he held her and the look on his face that he was going to be an amazing dad. Over the next 10 years, Melody and Nick would go on to have three other children for a total of four, each of them deeply loved by their mother and father. According to Melody, Nick was a very hands-on dad who wanted to teach them everything he had learned in life and to give them the skills to succeed at whatever they wanted to do. For Nick, his wife and children were his life. This was well documented on his Facebook page, which featured photos of him fishing and with Melody and the children riding quads with his kids as well as sharing their achievements in academics. But the truth is, Nick's personality was larger than life. As we spoke with Melody, read her writings, and researched who Nick was, we saw a man who loved to live in the moment. He'd often send photos of himself to Melody while working on a project at work, just to show her what he was doing. In one photo, he was standing under a ceiling with a huge smile on his face. In the next, there was a large hole in the same ceiling as he took a humorous selfie. And while life was great for this young family, in October of 2015, that would all change. On the evening of Friday, October 23rd, Melody was packing and preparing for a trip up to Delaware. Her uncle was retiring as the chief of police and her plan was to travel with her parents to the retirement banquet. While Melody was going to be roughly five hours out of town, Nick had a fishing trip planned for himself and the kids, followed by pizzas, movie, and treats. The following morning, Melody got all packed up into her mother's car and they were about ready to leave when Nick ran out of the house, waving his arms wildly in the air. Melody's mom asked, What did she forget? Nick smiled and said, She forgot my kiss. He then walked over and gave Melody a kiss and watched as his wife departed for her family trip. After watching her drive off into the distance, Nick started to get the kids ready for a day of some pond fishing. The plan was to head over to his mother's house to visit and then stopped by the dollar store for some candy before hitting the local bait shop on Hull Street. After fishing, they'd hit up a red box to rent a movie and get all set up for movie night. A little while later, Melody texted Nick to check in on them and see how things were going. He replied that he and the kids were just about to leave his mother's house and head to the pond. A short time after that text exchange, Melody had to stop to grab a jacket as she had forgotten hers at home. She called Nick and he said they were back at his mother's house as one of the kids had to use the bathroom and he didn't want to haul the children inside of the gas station so it was easier to turn around and go back. They said I love you to one another and then got off the phone, each of them going back to what they were doing, never knowing it would be the last time they would speak to each other. Melody was soon approaching Delaware and texted Nick, saying, I love you and miss you, Nikki. She never got a reply, but thought maybe Nick was busy getting the kids set up at the pond. Earlier in the day, he had asked her to call him when she arrived at her destination, so she called and a woman answered his phone. 
The woman stated she was a Chesterfield police officer and that there had been an accident. The officer asked Melody if she had any relation to Nick, to which Melody stated that she was his wife. She asked if Nick and the children were okay. The officer stated, The children are not harmed and Nick is on the way to the hospital to be checked out, but the children are safe with us. Melody was unable to get any more information and told her mom that they had to leave immediately to get back home. Years before, Melody felt that desire to get home to Nick just after they first started dating. But with the uncertainty of the current situation, a five-hour drive back home was hell on earth. Melody's father was able to get over to the hospital to check on Nick, eventually telling Melody that he was stable but unconscious. She asked her father to tell Nick that she was on her way home. While family who were at the hospital were aware of the gravity of the situation and knew that Nick was in very critical condition, they did what they could to keep Melody calm as she made her way back home. When Melody eventually arrived at the hospital, she could barely make it inside. Before heading up on the elevator, she found her way to the bathroom and proceeded to vomit from the unknown of what was to come. As she walked into the ICU hospital room where her husband was lying, she later recalled feeling her heart fall to the floor. She gently rested her head on his chest, crying, asking Nick to wake up, telling him how much she needed him there. A family friend who worked at the hospital explained to Melody what they knew. Nick had been shot in the head, and the bullet had damaged most of his brain. A CT scan showed that the bullet stopped and was resting near his brainstem. Melody asked, What can we do? The friend responded, Honey, there isn't anything we can do. He isn't coming home from this. I am so sorry. After being told the news, Melody went back to Nick's room. She could see that under the bandages that wrapped his head, there was major swelling. She then noticed all the tubes and lines running into the man she once knew to be so strong. The doctor caring for Nick explained to Melody that all of the lines and tubes were the only thing keeping him alive, and that eventually his body would begin to shut down. On October 25, 2015, the hardest decision Melody had to make was to take her husband, Nikki, as she called him, off of life support. She later wrote of the situation, The color slowly faded from his face. His lips turned so blue and, then within moments, the blue faded to a pale gray. I kissed him one last time, told him I would love him forever, and said goodbye to my Nikki. It was only his body there, but somehow it still felt like I was leaving him behind. The man I promised to always be there for, and I had to walk out of that hospital without him. After the tragic crash, Nick and Melody's firstborn daughter was able to get the other three children out of the car and to run for help. And while the police were ruling this case as an accidental suicide, their daughter said something that stuck with Melody upon learning of her father's death. In tears, she asked her mother, Are they going to find the man who killed my daddy? After the news reported on the accident, there were people online who said terrible things while questioning 
just how a father could do such a thing with his own children in the car. But again, those who knew Nick knew that he wouldn't. Nick spent a lot of time at the gun range and was extremely familiar with firearms. And while the community wanted answers, so too did Nick's family. A few weeks after Laura French ran the story on Nick's tragic accident, she received a phone call. So I didn't think much of it. A couple weeks go by and I received a call from, his name is Nathan. I received a call from Nathan and he said, Laura, my oldest granddaughter does not want to stay at home. She's staying with my wife and I. She keeps talking about this vehicle that was next to their car and the bad guy that was in there. And, you know, she's having these horrible nightmares. She says that, um, you know, somebody was in a vehicle next to them and, and shot their shot her daddy. And I was like, oh, gosh, how do I handle this? Um, you know, and, and she swears that somebody somebody was next to them, that there was somebody there and that, that there was not a gun that went off in their car, that somebody else was there. And she's having these horrible nightmares. And I'm like, it's not that I don't believe her, Nathan. But I cannot just go on television and say this. I need more than that. I need more. And, you know, and I said, what is your daughter saying about this? And, you know, and she said, um, you know, we want to listen to them. So she has contacted the police department and she wants them to re-interview the children. Though she was in the process of grieving, Melody continued asking the police to interview the children as her daughter was stating that she remembered seeing a car next to them just before the shooting. But the police claimed they didn't want to, quote, re-traumatize the children. She said to the investigator, with all due respect, officer, my children watched their father get their head blown off. The damage is already done. Eventually, Laura was able to sit down with Melody and Nick's daughter and interview her about what happened. During an emotional interview, the then nine-year-old spoke about everything she remembered from that day. Near the end of the interview, Laura noticed the young girl holding a piece of paper. She said, oh, it's the car that drove up next to us. It's the vehicle where the, you know, the bad guy that was in there that shot my daddy. And, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, in a split second, you see a man point a gun at your dad, shoot your father's head off, and then you have an image of the vehicle with great detail and then remember that image and sketch it out on a piece of paper. The crayon drawing was of a car that appeared to be an early 2000s model of a Honda sedan that was green in color with a black stripe down the sides of the doors. Eventually, documents pertaining to Nick's death were released back to Melody, including his autopsy report, as well as ballistics on the bullet that was removed from Nick's skull. What was odd, however, was that the bullet which was retrieved during the autopsy was that of a 38 Special, while the gun Nick was carrying with him the day of the accident was a 380. Those unfamiliar with firearms or ammunition may see the 38 Special and 380 and potentially think they're similar. And while they are close in bullet diameter, they are in fact very different. A 380 is fired from a semi-automatic pistol such as a Smith & Wesson M&P or a Glock 42, whereas a 38 caliber is fired from a semi-automatic revolver. Another example is that 38 special bullets are cased in a 357 cartridge, much larger than that of a 380. 
If you tried to load a 38 Special into a 380 pistol, there is simply no way you could do it. The cartridge will fit neither into a magazine nor if you tried to chamber it directly with the slide back. Melody was also told that there were no rounds missing from Nick's gun, which didn't make any sense. If the gun had accidentally discharged, the round would have surely been missing. Investigators told her it was possible that he had a round in the chamber, but Melody knew her husband. She remembered Nick, telling her, quote, You don't keep one in the chamber because that's how you shoot your balls off. There was also no GSR or gunshot residue found on Nick's hands, clothing, or inside of the car. In an amendment to the autopsy report dated December 13, 2016, it states, quote, The bullet recovered from Mr. Clavier's brain was consistent with a 38 Special slash 357 Magnum bullet, and markings on the bullet indicate it could not have been fired from the 380 pistol recovered from the vehicle. Another finding was a dent in an area on the driver's side door of the vehicle, near the window, which was unexplainable. Melody knew it wasn't there prior to the accident, but there seemed to be no explanation as to why that dent was there now. A report pulled from the Clavier's onboard computer in the SUV seemed to contradict evidence from the scene. At the time in which Nick was shot, he was driving an estimated 12 miles per hour on a stretch of highway that was set with a 55 mile per hour speed limit. There were also old skid marks on the road around the area where the vehicle went over the embankment. But in all of Melody's research, she found that at 12 miles per hour, you can't create the type of skid marks that were left there on Hull Road. What it was in line with, however, was her daughter's recollection of a car speeding off at the time that Nick was shot. Nothing was adding up or making much sense in the case. Melody began putting together her own investigation, reaching out to gun experts via email to communicate her findings, which everyone she spoke with stated that it was not possible to fire a 38 Special round from a 380 pistol. By May of 2017, Laura was able to meet up with Melody again to discuss finding a way to get Nick's case reopened and reinvestigated. When we talked on the phone, I said to her, listen, you have to do what's right for you and you need to be comfortable for me. So why don't we meet at a local Starbucks before there's any cameras, before there's any talk about doing this interview. I want this to be right for you first and foremost. So we met at a Starbucks and she comes there with a folder and it's full of papers and she pulls out all these papers and there's pictures of bullets and there's pictures of her husband at the shooting range you know images from when he was there and she has the different weapons as you said and it shows the different sizes of the bullets and you can see very clearly that there's no way that that bullet would ever fit in Nick's weapon. And then she pulls out emails from gun experts that say, to your point, there's no way. It's not physically possible for that bullet to fit into that weapon. But I, I tell her, I can't, I can't use that for my story. I need to take this, the forensics that they have, you know, gotten back on um, Nick's autopsy and the gun information and all that and I need to bring it to my own gun experts so you, you see during our interview 
and this was one of the most powerful parts of the story besides interview our gun expert hold the gun take the bullet and try to put it into the barrel and you see there's just no physical way that it's going to fit so you know melody said that that she was told by you know someone in the police department oh well maybe you know he he maybe it was just in in the gun and maybe he picked it up at the gun range well if in fact someone told her that it would you know that's just absolutely ridiculous one of the things laura needed to do was go to a local gun expert who was willing to appear on camera and show the differences in what information melody had gathered after the story laura put together with melody's help aired there was an official update by the chesterfield police department on nick's case Within days, the investigation changed from accidental to pending. I think after the story aired, they had no choice but to take another look at this case. Um, The response after the story was, you know, obviously very critical of the police department. And I felt like we were very fair in our reporting. There was, I don't feel like there was any other choice but for them to take another look. And I sought advice from many former police chiefs that I've worked with. I had them look at this case before I reported on it. I asked them, am I missing anything? I had them look at the autopsy, the forensics, everything, the ballistics. I had them look at everything. Am I missing anything? The last thing I want to do is create any kind of hysteria in the community you know, I want to make sure I'm being responsible. And all of them said, listen, we make mistakes. And it's okay to say that we have made a mistake and take another look at a case. And that is what this police department needs to do. And that's what they need to say. And that is what you are dealing with here. And in the end, that's what ended up happening. So, you know, it was just days before they were really needing to say that. And they did. Um, And when they did take a deep look and seriously took a look and handed this case off to their unsolved, it's called UMEG, Unsolved Major Investigations Group. And that department keyed in on what they needed to do. When UMEG, or the Unsolved Major Investigations Group, took a hold of Nick's case, they poured over everything found from the time of the crash to information they received long after his death. Laura was able to find out during her own investigative research that UMIG would hold a roundtable discussion with investigators, and they would look at things in their unsolved cases and bounce ideas off one another, in an effort to logically explain what could have potentially happened in a case. But for Nick's case, however, they looked at a multitude of things, from the autopsy to the ballistics report. One of the investigators at this roundtable conversation saw something with the dent in the driver's side door. When Nick was found, he had a wound to his left temple where the bullet entered after being shot. Initially, investigators believed it to be soot from his gun discharging at a close range. But the UMIG investigator who brought up the dent raised the possibility that the bullet struck the weather stripping of the window before striking Nick in the head. When this unsolved major investigations group, or, you know, as maybe some might look at it as a cold case group, took a real hard look at this case, this team figured out, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't soot. 
maybe that was the weather stripping around the window and this bullet didn't come from the inside of the car. It came from the outside of the car. And maybe this really was a homicide. And that's when they really got the answers they needed. The UMIG investigators now had the reasoning and evidence to change Nick's case from accidental to homicide. But therein lied the question of just who shot Nick Clavier. That it wasn't just Nick's murder they were about to solve, as there was yet another. And in that process, they would learn the truth of what actually happened on October 24th, 2015. So at that point in time, when they really figured out that this was a homicide, that's when they offered this reward from the H- the ATF offered a reward. And when they offered that reward, the right people came forward and the right tip came forward. The bullet that was in Nick's brain and that those ballistics matched the murder that happened 12 hours later in Richmond. And that's how those two cases were solved. And it was all because of the reward that was offered and the tips that came in. So the right people started talking once money was offered. Just 12 hours after Nick was killed, the Richmond Police Department responded to a call about a man lying in the middle of the road on the 2500 block of Powell Road. When officers arrived on scene, they located 28-year-old Mark Jefferson suffering from an apparent gunshot wound. He would later succumb to his injuries. Just as Nick's family looked for answers in regards to his mysterious death, Mark's family wanted to know who was responsible for taking his life and allocated funds to rent billboards around the Richmond area, pleading for information or tips in the case. But sadly, at the time, nothing came from it. As Laura stated, the ATF then offered a $5,000 reward in regards to any information that would lead to solving Nick's tragic murder. Eventually, someone came forward. The anonymous tipster told police that the man responsible for the deaths of both Nick Clavier and Mark Jefferson was none other than 21-year-old Jerquel Cheatham. And unsurprisingly, law enforcement in the Richmond area were already very familiar with who Jerquel was. And that day, the individual who pulled up to Nick Clavier and his four children that day happened to be an individual who was a dangerous man, one who had a rap sheet from the time that he was as young as 14, police say, He was someone who was um, on the U.S. Marshal's um, most wanted fugitive list. So this is someone who had a very lengthy rap sheet, police say. And, you know, someone who we really can't delve too deep into his past because he was a minor for a lot of these offenses. But police say that he was definitely known to them and he was not afraid to pull the trigger. Now that investigators knew who was behind the murder of Nick Clavier and Mark Jefferson, The only thing left to do was find and arrest him. Or so they thought. As it turns out, just three months after both Nick and Mark were tragically murdered, Jerquel was gunned down in the Illusions nightclub in South Richmond. He died after being shot multiple times in the back, something he never even saw coming. After completing their investigation, the Chesterfield Police Department called Melody and Nick's family down to the station and told them they finally had all of the answers they were so desperately seeking. As they proceeded through the slideshow presentation prepared for the family, the Claviers were confronted with a photo of Nick's alleged killer. 
Investigators also explained what they believed to have actually happened. At some point while driving on Hall Road, there seemed to have been some type of road raid incident between Jerquel and Nick, though it is not known who the aggressor was. Despite not knowing, Nick's family knew. You see, Nick was very familiar with firearms and was a licensed concealed carrier. The one thing that Nick always preached to his family and children was that you never pull out a firearm unless you're fully intent on using it. They didn't believe Nick would have ever put his children in danger by pulling out his gun in an effort to scare Jerquel. It just wasn't in his nature or training. Instead, they believed that Nick pulled out his gun once Jerquel pulled out his revolver and was fearing for the safety of his children. Nick was likely ready to lay his life on the line to protect his little ones, just like any dad would do in that situation. In the end, it was the ultimate sacrifice that Nick made to save his children. We asked Melody about the feelings she endured when finally finding out the truth about what happened. She told us, quote, The day I finally got all of the answers was a very emotional one. I had worked so hard and waited so long for it. And when it came, I wanted so much for it to bring peace and closure. But in fact, it opened up all the grieving I had not allowed myself to do yet. I spent all my energy fighting for the truth that I was consumed in it. And when it was over, I was left with nothing more to hold my focus. And I was forced to deal with all of my loss. It was kind of like fighting for his name was keeping him alive in my mind. And so it was the final step in letting him go. It was overwhelming. I felt slighted because I couldn't look his killer in the eyes and tell him just what he took from us. I couldn't see him locked up for his actions. Yet on the other hand, I was relieved we wouldn't have to go through a trial and put my children through reliving it all over again. There were emotions of gratitude for the men and women who worked hard to get us there, but also anger for the ones who didn't work hard at the start. Feeling like if they would have found this man sooner, then maybe I could see the justice served as well as possibly saving another family from the same pain. When they showed me the photo of the man who took my husband's life, I couldn't contain my tears. It was surprising to me how young he was, how small he looked. I always pictured a scary, scary person, and that was not at all how he looked. That face is burned into my brain. That average-looking man with the eyes of a killer. Empty. Though Melody hopes that new systems are eventually set in place for cases like Nick's, she still has immense amounts of respect for the Chesterfield Police Department. After the truth had finally been unveiled, they admitted that they made a mistake instead of trying to make excuses. Remember the crayon drawing of the car that Nick and Melody's daughter drew? Well, it turns out, it was a key piece of evidence she had been faithfully holding on to in plain sight all along. Lee said it was an exact match of the vehicle that actually drove by Nick's car of the suspect's vehicle. 
we were all just blown away. And the child at the time was nine years old. When we spoke with Laura, we asked how working this story and her determination to give the Clavier family a voice had impacted her life. I still get really emotional when I watch the documentary back because I watched go from being a closed, shy child that felt like nobody believed her to just changing overnight, that somebody was listening to her and that someone finally believed her and that there was going to be hope that people would know that her daddy did not do something that would have hurt her and her siblings. And to think that I played a part in that just by doing my job is so rewarding. So it's just an enormously rewarding feeling to know that you have that kind of impact in someone's life just by being able to do your job. You know, this job can be depressing and it can be, and it can take a toll on you and it can be stressful and it can really get you down when you read social media and when you get lumped together as the media and journalists and people make assumptions because of, you know, you're part of that media. But when you do a story like this, it it lifts you up again. And that's why I do this job because I want to make a difference in people's lives and I want to hold people accountable that need to be held accountable and I want I want to change people's lives and and the Clavier family is a prime example of why I do what I do. I met when she was nine years old and didn't want to interact with anyone. On February 14th, I'll be going to her 16th birthday and she is a changed little girl. A lot of it has to do with this story. You know, this story was probably one of the most memorable in my career. This is a family that's near and dear to my heart, for sure, leave a lasting impact in my life. While much has changed in Melody and her children's lives since Nick's tragic murder, she has since remarried and continues to be a rock and stable foundation for her children to lean on. And though there has been a changing of times, Melody will never forget that summer day in 2004 when she saw the young man walking in her neighborhood, or the months to follow that would ultimately change her life for the better. The moments she spent with Nick as he grew from a young man into a husband and eventually a father of four are irreplaceable. Melody expressed how much writing helped her process the grief she endured after Nick's tragic murder. And frankly, without the personal writings she shared with us, this episode would not have been possible. Within the journal entries that we were privileged enough to read and share with you, we were afforded a unique inside look of who Nick Clavier was and the incredible impact he left upon his wife, children, friends, and family. There within the pages of Melody's writings, there was something she wrote that emotionally impacted us not only as writers and producers, but also as fellow human beings. In a letter penned to Nick shortly after his death, Melody wrote, I miss you so much, Nick. I can't believe you're gone. The house is a reminder of just how much we really need you. Your daughter is having a real hard time accepting that you're gone. 
the others are heartbroken as well. Nikki, I love you so much, and I feel so lost. I keep waiting for you to call and say you're coming home. Of course, I know that's not true. I hope you know I held you till your last breath. I promised I would never leave you, and the hardest thing I've ever done was walking out of that hospital room. Even though you were gone, it was hard leaving the man that I love laying there. I don't even know where to go from here. You were my world, and now my world is shattered. I miss you. I love you forever. While for some, love occurs at first sight, so too might tragedy. When driving down the open road, traveling at the speed limit, we never actually know who we might encounter in passing. In fact, most of us move about our days while traveling by car or truck on the road with a relative sense of comfort and safety. But as we've been reminded in this case, all it takes is a single moment when we may inevitably cross paths with the wrong person at the wrong time, leaving an important decision to be made in the blink of an eye. A decision that, unfortunately, sometimes represents the difference between life and death. On the day that Nick Clavier was tragically murdered and lost his life, he did so in order to protect the lives of his four young children seated beside and behind him. A choice that if given the opportunity to make again in some parallel universe, he undoubtedly would, if it meant saving the lives of those who were most important to him, his children. We would like to extend a special thank you to Melody Clavier Weston and Laura French for their heartfelt contributions to this episode. 